0: Understanding an idea of why we gather. Regardless of what the topic is. Um, why. Why we gather as a people of God. But as a good reminder. I just wanted to. As a, as a, as a good reminder. I wanted to read. Um, just a portion. This portion from. Uh, a book that a guy named Dallas Willard. Who has since passed wrote. Uh, the main thing that you can give and whether it be for me as a pastor to my congregation or you, spouse, children, work the main thing that you can give whatever the setting is just like the main thing that you give to God is the person that you become that's what everybody will see that's what will get reproduced That is so freakish and sobering for me. The person that I am becoming is the person that I will reproduce. That's what people will believe. So if your soul is unhealthy, you can't help anybody. But you and you alone, nobody else, are responsible for your soul. And then he gives two advice. One, and some of you have heard me say this. He says, you, fellow American Western Christians, you have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You have to ruthlessly eliminate Hurry from your life. And then secondly, he says, arrange your life so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in what you do, in what you're producing, and what everybody says about you. No. Deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. So, It doesn't matter what we're talking about, what we're focused on Sunday mornings. Who you are becoming. I don't care what you do, what your context is. Who you are becoming is what you will reproduce and affect people will see and believe. So my question is, who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? That's the And if you're sitting there and you know your life is in a hurry, if you know that you live this out of time, out of space, why do I I, 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 if you know that and you have been unable to slow down, stop, be quiet, listen. And if you know nothing of deep contentment, if you know nothing of joy, if you know nothing of satisfaction, but you know all about anxiety, restlessness, deep sense of, I need more. <sighs> Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. See, even as I'm saying this, some of you right now, physically and spiritually, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, can't, you can't even sit still right now. Good Lord, you can't literally sit still right now. Your mind is racing. What does that say about you and me? And we're trying to live deep, meaningful, spiritual lives in our lives? Are you kidding? And we want to be good husbands, we want to be good wives, we want to be good fathers and mothers, we want to be... Who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? Who are we becoming? And by the way, if you're sitting there right now and you're restless, you're thinking about tomorrow, your heartbeat's going 100 miles per hour, you just can't, or just frankly, just deep sense of, ugh, there's no contentment, and joy. My prayer for you has been as we've wor- worshipped, just allow yourself just to be open. Remember, I said God can work with anything; He just requires openness and humility, and just saying, God. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today, by the way. But anyway, I just, you know, thought. (laughs) Of course it has everything to do with what I'm talking about. Because what I'm about to talk about is (sighs) to get us to that place where we are experiencing deep contentment and joy and satisfaction in God. Because if that's not the case, nothing matters. Nothing else matters. I don't care what you're doing out there. It doesn't matter. (sighs) Doesn't matter. Who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? What are we reproducing? What are people seeing? What are people believing? We're in the book of Daniel. I'm warning you right now, I'm going to cover a lot of ground. (laughs) Too much, I think. Because I have one week for chapter five, one week for chapter six, because we're not going to go longer, because I have sermon series leading up to Easter, and I can't not do that, so I'm just going to have to pack it in. So I need you to take notes, and what I want you to do is to be able to, throughout the week, talk about it with your community group, and unpack things, because I'm just going to, all right, Daniel chapter five. I, whatever that means, I don't know. Daniel chapter 5. Daniel's exilic literature written to uh, people of God who are in exile, living in a secular pluralistic culture, and what it means to follow God and live faithful, obedient lives. That's the context. Now, in Daniel chapters 1 through 4, we've covered Daniel's life as a young man, but in Daniel chapter 5 and 6, he is an older man. He's in his 70s, he's in his 80s. He's now going to be serving another king. Do you know that Daniel is a book from which a lot of phrases that we use in our our culture comes from? What do you think the feet of clay, somebody's made a feet of clay, where does that come from? It comes from the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel chapter 2? The big golden statue, that feet of clay. In other words, you could look all impressive on the outside, but you are fragile, you are weak, you could. This chapter, we get this, well, the handwriting is on the wall. Do you know that that comes right from the book of Daniel? Right from the book of Daniel. That's right. So all these phrases we use in our culture and hand raising on the wall. So hopefully we'll have enough time to get to what that means. If we don't, you just have to figure it out for yourself, okay? So let's jump in. Following the death of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon declines. And after short reigns, a guy named Nebonitus, Nebonidus becomes king. Now historians have known that Nebonidus was the last king of the Babylonian Empire. But that's also why, do you know that for many years, secular scholars have said that Daniel chapter 5 is actually legendary. It's made up. Since there's no Belshazzar, who we're going to look at today, was the main character, no Belshazzar appears in the ancient list of emperors, this supposed king, Belshazzar, was a figment of the biblical writer's imagination, so on and so forth. But what we now know is that archaeology... Revealed that Nebuchadnezzar, the last king of Babylon, actually moved his reign or his residence far away in the last 10 years of his life, leaving Belshazzar as the royal regent to actually functionally rule as king. Are you tracking with me? Okay. That's why the Bible shows even more biblical accuracy when Daniel at the says to, uh, or Belshazzar says to Daniel, I'm going to offer you the third highest, the third highest role in my kingdom. Why? Because he's only second. Why? Because a dude named, what, Nebuchadnezzar is first. Why is this important, Peter? I'll tell you why it's important. Because for years, the story of Belshazzar seemed like evidence for the historical unreliability of the Bible. And a lot of people looked at that and said, that's why you can't really, truly take seriously the authority of scriptures. And here's what happens when we question the authority of scriptures. You and I think that we have to judge which parts of the Bible is right or wrong rather than letting the Bible judge which parts of us are right or wrong. And man, oh man, listen to me, listen to me. Think about the difference between one posture that says, I have the authority to judge which parts of the Bible are right or wrong. Or letting the scriptures judge which parts of us are right or wrong. Think of the implications, friends, said why is the authority of scripture so important i'll tell you exactly why and we've hovered over this throughout the book of daniel because i encounter and meet people all the time who people say stuff like this i can't accept the god who does this and who says that i can't accept the god who would say this and who does that to which i want to go i want to reason with you okay i'm not preaching at you i want to reason with you for the next two minutes then i want to say to them then where do you have a personal relationship with that god because here's what I know about personal relationships. Take my wife, for example. When you have a personal intimate relationship, and everybody, I think, wants a personal intimate relationship with there's a God, with some God. But here's the thing about a personal intimate relationships. It requires communication. And part of communication in any personal intimate relationships is that person's ability to contradict you, disagree with you, push back. If you're in a relationship with somebody who never contradicts you, disagrees with you, offends you, pushes back, that's not a real relationship. For whatever, that person is hiding their true selves from you. So I wanted to ask you something. Where does your God push back to you? Where does your God push back, disagree? Where does your God offend and make you uncomfortable? Because if you have a God that says, there's nothing about him that offends me, there's nothing about him that makes me uncomfortable, there's nothing about, that God is a product of your imagination and not a God of spirit. And why is that important? Okay, just give me a few more seconds. Because if you have a God that you've created, that God will never change you. The profoundest need of our hearts is a God who's not the product of our hearts. The well, scripture says an untamed God, right? This God who's a little scary, a little uncomfortable, a little... Uh, but unless you have a God like that, your heart will never be transformed. Your heart will never be changed. So my question to you this morning is this, when you approach scripture, do you go, I am going to decide right, wrong, I like it, I don't like it, or do you submit under the authority of scripture and say, God, you judge me, you correct me? And if you're somebody sitting here saying, "I well, just stay away from Christianity because parts of the Bible's teaching is just offensive to you, then you're assuming that if there's a God, he will never say or do anything that offends you. Does that make any sense? I need you and I to wrestle with this God who makes you uncomfortable, who you don't quite understand sometimes, who you go, God, I wish you wouldn't say that. I wish you, because unless you have a God like that, you'll never be changed. I am speaking 2018 in America where the authority of God's word has been relegated to, I am authority over it. Come on, you guys. Come on, you guys. It doesn't even make sense. I'm not even, it's not even reasonable. All right, Daniel chapter 5. So let's look at this text. Chapter 5, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, by the way, in the ancient Near East, okay, the word father was used to describe an elder, an older person, okay, ancestors. They didn't have grandfather, great-grandfather back then. So father, and you'll see it five, six times, Nebuchadnezzar refers to Belshazzar as father. The other thing is in that time, Father was used even more generally to mean a person in his, whose shoes one should follow. That's why Elisha, the younger prophet, calls Elijah my what? My father. Belshazzar gets a warning from God about his pride and his arrogance as we'll see. Just as Nebuchadnezzar did, the problem is this son does not walk in the steps of his father. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, might drink from them. These gold and silver goblets, by the way, were the emblems of power and presence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And according to Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1, there was about 5,400 of them that Nebuchadnezzar raided from the temple in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon. Now, why is Belshazzar using the goblets from temple in Jerusalem when he has access to thousands and thousands of his own goblets? We'll see. Verse three, so they brought in the gold goblets they had taken from the temple and God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. I need you to use your imagination for a second, because what you have in Daniel chapter five is a drunken orgy gone out of control. Question, good idea or bad idea to bring wives and concubines to get in the same room? Are you thinking with me this morning, good idea, bad idea, church? idea. It's a bad idea. The kings and nobles, concubines and wives are all in the same room. Bad idea. It is a completely out of control, sensual, sexual, drunken, or what is going, well, we'll see why. Verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the God of gold and silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and stone. So Belshazzar is leading his people in this drunken orgy. And this is what he's saying. Listen to this. He's saying, this is, this is Belshazzar, this is what I think of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is nothing to me. And to show that he is nothing to me, I will use the very things that represent his power and presence to drink from it. And they're using the emblems of power and presence of God to toast these gods who have mouths but cannot speak. Who have ears but they can't hear. Who have eyes but can't see. And completely desecrating the God who is actually allowing them to have the next breath. The psalmist uh, in Psalm one. 10-4 says, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Now you guys, check this out. I love stories. Do you know what's happening in Daniel chapter 5? Unless you know the context, you know. Here's what's happening. Darius, who is leading the Medo-Persian Empire, has just led his army and has obliterated the Babylonian army 50 miles away from the capital city of Babylon, like a week before. So the city of Babylon is completely helpless now. It's only a matter of time. So everybody in the city of Babylon, Belshazzar, all his nobles, they're freaking out because the clock is what? Ticking. Okay? And they're sitting there going... What's Darius going to do? Is he going to come and just completely just wipe us all out? Is he going to come and maybe make us, you know, a, a, a puppet kind of an empire? What's, nobody knows. And it's in that context that Belshazzar throw this party. Now, some people say, commentators, what's going on? Maybe it's denial. It's, 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 it's the, all of them going, we're going to die tomorrow, so let's just drink, have lots of sex, and who knows? Those people were so ignorant back then. Who does that anymore? Some people say, it's machismo, it's Belshazzar. You could, he's going, I will bow down to nobody. I... Some people think it's him being political. In other words, he needs to show power because his nobles are like, ah, his days are numbered, let's kill him. So maybe dare The important thing is, as death nears, the more excessive and belligerent the sexual activity, reveling and toasting their gods. Uh, Christian authors and commentators have not been most insightful about this. It's non Christian authors, actually. There's a guy named Ernest Becker who wrote, I think, won a Pulitzer Prize in 1973 or 4, wrote a book called The Denial of Death. In the book of Denial of Death, you can put that quote up there so you guys can take a look at while I talk about this. In the book of Denial, his entire premise in, the book of, in this book is this. His entire premise is, and by the way, as far as I know, he was an agnostic. His entire premise of the book is that humanity wants to live in denial of the fact that we're going to die and after we die, we go to nothing. We can't wrap my mind around, we can't wrap our mind around the fact that after we die, that's it. We die, there's nothing afterwards. There's, n- there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's nothing. And human beings just aren't capable of living in the reality of that. Like after I die, my days are not, After there's nothing. So, what does humanity do? This is his quote. He must desperately justify himself as an object of primary value in the universe. He must stand out. Yes. He must be a hero. He must make the biggest possible contribution to a world to show that he counts more than anything else. So he says, the way that you and I deal with this reality devil, once we die, is that we need to feel heroic. We need to feel and know that life matters in the larger scheme of things. We need to know that there's some higher purpose. So he says this, he says every culture's purpose is to set up things that people could use to basically live in denial of death. You think that's true? So he says, in our modern culture, there's three ways that we try to live in denial. First is what he calls the romantic solution. It's the wives and concubines. How do you live not know how do you, how do you live how do you live with the sense of i am significant there's meaning if there's no god how do you live with that you find it in what the romantic solution you find it in the love partner you find it in having somebody that will love me i found this little thing you guys remember albert einstein of course you do in 1996, a series of his letters that he wrote to his wife went auction. But part of his letters that he wrote to his wife, her name is Malaiva Marich, I thought I butchered it, Part of the letters that he wrote, he wrote marital expectations. This is 1914, marital expectations. This was Albert's expectations in the marriage for his wife. There were four of them. Daily laundry kept in good order. FY, I do all the laundry at my home. Just, just FY for you, okay? So we've changed. Okay, second, secondly, secondly, three meals regularly in my room. Apparently, Albert was a little self-centered, maybe a little self-focused. Okay, third, third, desk maintained neatly for my use only. Okay, and then the fourth one, <laughs> what's that? Fourth one was demand that she quit talking or leave the room if I request it. <laughs> Needless to say, they got divorced. Did you know that? They got divorced, yeah. They got divorced. I don't want you, but they got divorced. And in the same, listen, listen. In the same article, in the same article, oh, my name is Sarah K. Bellstrip, I think is her name, did a research of married people and their expectations of marriage, what they want. You know what they said? People actually transcendence. What? <laughs> Unconditional love. Wholeness. Meaning. Worth. Communion. No human being on the planet will be that for you. Don't fool yourself. Because some of you are sitting here and you laugh. You actually think my marriage and my spouse is supposed to be God-like everything to me. If there is no God, my spouse, my marriage, that's where it is. Romantic solution. Second, by the way. Because I'm going to cook the other two. If this is you, if you are sitting here, if you're a Christian or if you're sitting here, and you are looking for a relationship, and if you sit there and go, well, who does that? That's idiot. That's our culture. That's our society. Listen to music. Listen to The moment you walk out of there, you are told, you are told, you are told. In that relationship, you'll find transcendence, wholeness, meaning, life, communion. And you are searching for something that can never be found on earth. Creative solution. That's easy. It's the golden. That's what? It's how am I going to find meaning? It's by creating. It's by achieving. It's by doing. How many of you find your worth in what you do? Come on. How many of you find worth in what you do, what you achieve, what people say? Why are you sitting here so depressed? I had a bad week. What about your week? Oh, yeah. I wasn't affirmed. I didn't do as well as I liked. I failed. Third is the religious solution. The toasting of the gods. What's that? Man decides if there's no God, how do I find me? I'm going to posit a God and I'm going to obey his rules and that's where I find significance and meaning. So I'm a good person, I know I'm somebody, why? Because I do well, I obey. And by the way, he goes on this long rant about that's the essence of why religious people are oppressive. Because you have to look down at people and go, you're not obedient, you're not as good as I am, why? You guys, as death nears, as death comes close, the response of humanity is to, by the way, he says the shop, which is the same thing he says. Drink, sleep around, achieve, create, just so we can find meaning. Without realizing without God's glory, there is no glory. Come on. Without God's glory, there is no glory. Verse 5, suddenly... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The literal translation in Hebrew is the joints of his loins were loosened. <laughs> One minute is the great king, Belshazzar, the bad Belshazzar. Another minute, he is a... Blubbering mess of humanity, by the way, just on a side note, you know what this reminded me of? It reminded me of George H. W. Bush in nineteen ninety two when he was in Tokyo. Anybody remember this? You're too somebody old enough to remember this, you remember, remember how he fainted? <laughs> Secret service and his wife had to come. And that time it was on account of bad sushi. Here. It's a kind of sin. Verse 7, the king summoned the enchanted astrologers, diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the kingdom's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. Ah! <laughs> if you're thinking, why you do that, Peter? Because for four chapters, we see this over and over and over again. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, sees something, he doesn't know what it means. So he tells his wise men, interpret what it means. What is the answer? They cannot tell him what the answer is. Why do you and I keep going back to the same thing where there is no answer? Why do you and I keep going back to the same thing where no answer is to be found? Why do we keep drawing from the same well when that well is empty? I found this verse, as I was studying this, Jeremiah 2.13, my people have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What an imagery metaphor, you guys. This is saying, you and I are walking through the desert, parched, thirsty. I literally am thirsty, excuse me for a second. That is so good. We're walking through the desert, parched, thirsty. And God says, living water right here, it's free. Come get it. Here's what you and I do. I see a shovel over there, and we start digging. We start digging. God says, but there's living water. No, I'm going to dig. I'm going to dig my own cistern. I'm going to dig my own cistern. Problem is, that cistern can never carry water. Why? It leaks, it breaks, it's frail. I'm going to tell you something. Some of you are angry today because God will not help you dig your own cistern. I'm going to tell you right now, God will never help you dig your own cistern. God will never help you find joy outside of himself. oh my gosh, oh my gosh. We're so thirsty. And we're digging our own cisterns. We're actually angry at God for not helping me dig faster and deeper. If there is a God and he actually helps you find joy outside of himself, that God is not worth worshiping. I'm going to ask you something. Please be honest. Are you digging your own sisters? Are you digging your own well? Why? For who? For what? You know there's no answer there. How many times do you and I have to go back to that? We've been through this before. Why are you digging? Verse 9, so King Nebuchadnezzar became even more terrified. on his face, grew even more pale. His nobles were baffled. Of course they are. Verse 10, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. The queen, it's the queen mother, not the wife. How do I know? Did you notice? Nobody walked into the presence of the king without his permission. Unless you were his mommy. Unless you were his mama. Because if you're his mama, you can go, everybody, chill out. What the heck is going on? <laughs> it, that's why I love the Bible. Did you know what So he walks. she walks in. She says, may the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't, don't look so... <laughs> I'm sorry. I have this image. She's going, honey, you don't look so good. What's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> then listen to this, you guys. She said, there is a man. Everybody say, there is a man. Come on, come sit with me. There is a man. In your kingdom, who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel was found to have keen mind and knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems, call for Daniel. And he will tell you what the writing means. Daniel is described in the Bible here, right here, as light, understanding, wisdom, excellent spirit, knowledge, and ability to solve problems. Do you know who else is described that way? The coming Messiah. Hey, hey, hey. Do you know? And you guys know I do this. Whether I'm preaching the old testament or whatever, everything is pointing towards what? Everything is pointing towards what? Jesus. Listen to what the Bible says in Isaiah. Remember what we just read, Isaiah eleven two. 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of what? Wisdom and of understanding, of counsel and of might, and the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Daniel foreshadows the one who is going to come and provide all the answers. And one time, Jesus is walking through Samaria, and he meets a Samaritan woman had four husbands, living with another man who's not his, her husband. Um, she encounters him and she goes into the town and her words are what? There is a man. There is a man. There is a man who told me I everything I ever did. There is a man who is full of wisdom and insight and understanding. There is a man who showed me that I don't have to go back to that well again. There is a man who showed me that, regardless of my past, thank you, Jesus, here's the gospel. Regardless of my past, there is redemption, there is healing, there is restoration. Hallelujah. There is a man who showed me that there is a place where I could find the living water. And then Jesus gets real close. She gets a little freaked out, like some of us. No, I keep it at arm's distance, not too close. And she says, Well, well, so someday, somebody's going to come, the Messiah. And explain all this to us. And Jesus says, hey, girl, I am the Messiah. I'm going to tell you something. Some of you are sitting here and you're going back to that well. You're going to go back to it tonight. You're going to go back to it tomorrow. Some of you are sitting there and that well is going to come in the form of a text or a call or an email. That well is going to come in the form of, I'm going to open my computer laptop That well is going to come in the form of a number of things. Your heart and your soul is so big that not all the empires of the world is big enough to fill it. There is no romantic, creative, religious solution that will meet that. There is one person who can and his name is Jesus. The one who's to come. The one who's to come. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles, my father, the king, before? I just want to punch him. I just want to punch him. Belshazzar, that is. You see his arrogance? You see his arrogance? He's literally saying, so, wait a minute. So, so this is who my mom talked about? Daniel, you're just a slave? You're just a captive? You? you, you? That's, that's who I brought in here. It's amazing that he approaches Daniel with such arrogance. He stands before the man who ultimately will give him the answer. And yet, in his pride and in his arrogance, he goes, and who are you again? Let me finish the story. We're almost done. Verse 14. I've heard that the spirit of God is in you, that you've inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. Now I've heard that you're able to give interpretation, solve difficult problems. If you can read the variety and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, Can I just stop here? You You know what I love? 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 I love this. I love, Daniel is like 80 some years old and yet he is going strong for the kingdom. I wept this week with the death of Billy Graham and he was an imperfect man. You and I both know that. He was not a perfect man. God used him. But he ran that race until he was 99. I'm gonna tell you something. And this this makes me emotional. When I look at elder saints in our church that are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, going strong for the kingdom, I just want to hug them and kiss them. And I just want to say, I want to be just like you. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Look at the elder saints in our church, people that you know. Go strong to the very end. I've said this before. I want to be on earth one day more than I need to be. When I'm done here, God, take me home. But I want to go strong to the very end. I don't want to coast and take it easy. You will never find me playing golf in Florida when I'm 80. Maybe at the beach, but not golf. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Daniel answered the king. You may keep your outfit for yourself and give your rewards to somebody else. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Basically, what it says here is let me tell you a couple of things. You could keep the outfit and I have enough chains, gold chains, and I know what to do with. <laughs> I love that. It's like a subtle, gentle comeback, you know. It's like mic drop. You keep your clothes. I don't need any more chains. I'll give you a little history lesson. Here's what he says. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Then the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and he grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes And then he says, but you, Belshazzar. He does not hold back. But you, listen to the pronouns, Belshazzar. You, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew. Though you knew all this. Though you knew. What's he saying? And I'm going to get back to this. Belshazzar was probably a little kid when Nebuchadnezzar went insane. He was probably a young man when the edict came down in Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter four, when Nebuchadnezzar went through his conversion. In other words, Belshazzar saw everything happen. And Daniel says, you knew. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the God of silver and of bronze, iron and wood and stone which you cannot see or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Real quick, notice that Belshazzar does not get a second chance. With Nebuchadnezzar, he got multiple chances. With Belshazzar, it was simply, you're done. Why is that important? Will you look up here for a second? Please don't walk out of here today if God is calling you to humble yourself and turn from sin, saying there might be tomorrow because there might not be tomorrow. Don't play that game. Don't play that game. my uncle so-and-so, you know, on his deathbed, he, that, to not play that game. What is Belshazzar accused of? Three things, and then if we have time, I'm going to get to the handwriting on the wall. One, sin against knowledge. You knew. Everybody, please look up here. Daniel says to Belshazzar, you can't plead ignorance you knew you can't plead ignorance implications two things one I I can't say this gently so I'm going to just say it increased knowledge brings about increased responsibility James 3 teachers will be held to a higher standard Luke 12 to whom more is given what? More is required. Increased knowledge brings increased responsibility. That means for some of us, you come here week after week, hear sermon after sermon, and you do nothing about it, you and I will be held accountable. I'm speaking to Western Christians in 2018 who have grown up in grown families. You've had Christian parents. You've gone to Christian schools. You have access to everything you need. And my question to you is, what will you say when you stand before God? Because one thing you and I can't do is, I didn't know. You know. You knew. You knew. If you're not a Christian here, if you're not a Christian here, Romans 1, which I don't have time to go into, but let me just say, Romans 1 says we will all be held accountable because we have all, the Bible says, been given revelation of God's will, God's goodness, and in creation in his son Jesus, in the word, and also with the law written on our hearts. That's why the Bible says, even if you're not a Christian, we say things like, we shouldn't do that, or we ought to do that. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Where does it come from? Second sin is a sin of using God's gifts for your glory and purpose. Oh uh, I need to be short about this because it's too much conviction. Belshazzar knew that the articles of the temple were set apart for the exclusive use of the God of of Yahweh, but he deliberately takes them and uses them for his own glory and pleasure. How many of us sitting here this morning are using gifts that God has given us for our glory and our purpose rather than God's glory and God's purpose? How many of us are using the wealth and resources God has given us? Malachi chapter 3, God says, What? God says, What? When you keep money for yourself and not use it for glory, my glory, it's not stinginess, it's what? It's robbery. Why? Because it all belongs to me. Are you using God's talents and gifts for your glory and purpose or God's glory and purpose? And third, third, is the sin of pride. You have not humbled yourself. Just like we saw last week, human pride is the main point of God's indictment. Just as it was in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. This, the Bible says, is a basic root sin. And because God loves you, if you were not here last week... Human pride essentially is an unwillingness to acknowledge that everything we have is a gift from God. And so to not acknowledge that everything is a gift from God, we delude ourselves into thinking that I am in control. And because God is loving, he will bring circumstances, events, people, conflict into our lives that will show us, just as I found out this week, you should have seen the number of emails and texts I got this week saying, I am that person that God is undressing right now because I am in a situation that I have no control over, Peter. And I'm being broken open. Sin against knowledge. Sin against using God's gifts for my glory. And sin against pride. Are you not guilty of any of them? Do we sit here this morning in awareness? What is this handwriting on the wall business? Can I end with that? Is that okay? Yeah? This is an inscription that was written. Daniel says, Mene, mene, tekel parsin. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and you've been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That night, verse 30, Belshazzar, king of Babylonians, was slain. 31, Nandarius Darius and me took over the kingdom at the age of 62. What is that? Writing on the wall business. I humbly submit to you my interpretation. It answers the question of how do we as Christians interact with the world that does not believe. Some people think that our job is to walk into those pagan sexual parties. And go, repent, repent. Judgment is coming. You're smiling now. You're having fun now. But wait, you're going to get yours. Repent, 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 repent. The kingdom of God is near. Now, obviously, I'm preaching a new community. So there's like two of you that's like, that's what I thought we were supposed to do. Anyway, <laughs> the rest of you are like, I know that, come on, that's not what it means. What does it mean? There is a handful of allusions in the Bible to the finger of God. You know where they are? Here's a couple in the Old Testament. The Bible says in Exodus that God gave Moses a tablet of stone that were written with the what? Finger of God. Psalm Psalm 83 says, I see your handiworks. The handiworks that you've created with the what? Finger of God. But there's one place, one place and only one place in the New Testament where you find the term finger of God. Do you know where that is? Of course you don't. I didn't. In Luke chapter 10, that's not where it is. Luke chapter 10. No, don't put it up yet. Luke chapter 10. Don't put it up yet. Come on. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't mean to yell at you. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. CC come on up. See, come on up. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples, and he says, I need you to preach the word, the gospel. I need you to go feed the hungry. I need you to go heal the sick, and I need you to cast out demons so people are set free. And the disciples go out and they're amazed that with the Spirit of God on them, they are able to preach the word and lives are changed, heal the sick, feed the hungry. And they're able to see people that are enslaved being set free. Then Luke chapter 11, don't put it the words yet. Jesus casts out a demon out of a man who is mute. And it causes a stir because the Pharisees are like, you're casting the demon out of the Spirit of Beelzebub, the chief of demons. And Jesus does this whole thing. How can a strong man? And then he says the following. After he casts out the demon. Luke chapter eleven twenty. 20. But if I drive out demons by the what? Finger of God. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Earl Ellis, New Testament scholar. Says that the inbreaking of the kingdom of God the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is breaking in and the kingdom of Satan, sin and death is yielding to that rule of Jesus and his kingdom. But just as King Belshazzar, listen, and his guests lived oblivious to the fact that his kingdom had fallen and doom had been sealed, The present age lives unaware that the kingdom of Satan, sin, and death has fallen, and his doom is sealed. Are you with me so far, church? Are you with me so far? As Jesus says, winter is coming to an end, and the sun is breaking forth. Spring is coming. But our world lives oblivious to this truth. How do we know that the kingdom of God and his rule and his justice and peace and righteousness, how do we know that that kingdom has broken in? How will they know that that kingdom has defeated evil? How do we know that kingdom has defeated Satan, sin, and death? How will the world know? Answer? Through you. And through me. You. at the handwriting on the wall see see either i'm not making any sense or they don't believe me the kingdom of god has come upon who you you and i are the writing on the wall that declares to this present age that lives unaware that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus? It is at the resurrection. We are the public display that God's kingdom is here and God's kingdom will come in its fullness. You and I make visible to this kingdom that lives. In romantic, creative, and religious ideology, this kingdom that's constantly going to broken cisterns, wells, again and again thinking that there is life. We are the visible, physical manifestation of the kingdom that there is a better answer, and his name is Jesus. (sighs) We are the handwriting on the wall, but not of judgment, but of hope. Not of condemnation, but of redemption and salvation. Is this good news? If we want them if we want the word to transform people's lives, then we must speak it. If we want to see generous lives of the kingdom, then we must model generosity. If we want to see a culture change, we must be the culture agents. If we want to see reconciliation, we have to pursue our neighbors. And if we want to see justice, then we must address systemic brokenness. Jesus is saying the handwriting is on the wall, and you and I are that handwriting. Come on, somebody. Somebody. I'm so tired right now. You and I, Jesus says, I've created a community that is making visible that there is a kingdom of justice, righteousness, love, of peace, of real answer can be found. So the question is, where the hand on the wall? But are you and I legible?